going to be our scripture reader today, but I thought I would take the chance to introduce the person who will be speaking after our scripture reading today. Uh, if you haven't already heard, we have a special guest today, Dr. Drew Hart, and so happy to have Dr. Drew and um, his friend Rebecca is here with her two daughters. Glad to have you here as well, Rebecca. Um, you know, I don't think you need to know somebody personally to be deeply influenced by them, and that was already the case before I ever got to meet Dr. Drew, his two books. The Trouble I've Seen and Can I Get a Witness have been very formative on me, which, whether you like it or not, probably means it's been formative on you as well. And so um, it's awesome to be able to hear from the person who's written those. He's a professor, author, been a pastor a long time, so have great regard for him. So his books will be available as well afterwards if you're interested in getting one of those. He's also preaching a passage. This is right in the middle of the book of Acts. Um, and I keep, I'm like, not only have I never preached on this passage, I've never actually heard a sermon on this passage. So when we get to it in just a minute in Acts chapter 9, I'm excited to see what Dr. Drew does with that. So we'll, we'll read this in just a second. I do want to take the chance uh, to, if you haven't, do you all read the weekly emails we send out? Christine works real hard on those. So uh, we, we try to put the important information on there. If you don't get those, please make sure, let me know. Um, but we're going to spend the Wednesdays in the month of May doing something we're going to call sessions. And... Uh, the first three of this, it's going to be Wednesday nights, we're going to do it in the loft area up in front. Um, we're going to kind of try to take a new stab at, oh, I feel bad. one of those kids is having a real tough time. <laughs> it's like the worst parent feeling when you hear your kid screaming like that, knowing that they're probably going to work it out, but you hope not. Anyway, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to blame that on ADD. I'm going to blame that instead of my deep empathy that can't help but be connected to the pain of the world. Uh, anyway, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm really off on my own thing right here. Uh, so these sessions we're going to do, um, for these first three, Benjamin and I are um, uh, kind of working on these together, and we're going to look at what's such a simple and yet profound and difficult kind of reality of communing together. Communing together, right? This is, this is, we're a people, we're supposed to commune together. But we know not only, I mean, being community is hard, even when you're in homogenous settings, community is hard. But when you're starting to travel across multiple differences, right, racial, cultural, economic, different neighborhoods, stuff like that, there, there's just a lot of stuff comes up. There's power dynamics and tricky things in the outer world, but just who we need to become to commune um, requires a lot. And so we're going to try to take a fresh look at this, look at each week of kind of the ways we need to orient ourselves to be able to commune, particularly commune across differences. So I invite you to that. It'll be the um, uh, uh, starting this. It's going to be all the Wednesdays in May, but starting this Wednesday, 7 o'clock, right there in the lo front loft area. Um, we're not going to do RCPs because nobody do RCPs anyway, but we hope that you will <laughs> come to it if you're interested in it. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to live stream that because so much of it is breaking into groups and stuff, so sorry. We try to live stream most things. But anyway, that starts this Wednesday, so if you're interested in coming, we'd love to invite you to that too. All right? With that being said, let us go ahead and stand together for the reading of the Word. This is from the Book of Acts of the Apostles. This is Acts 9, 36 through the end of the chapter. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. We all say that, Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydia was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them. And when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, 
And seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. I think that's the end here. This is the word of God. We give a warm welcome to Dr. Drew Hart. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, for those that remember, I was here probably about five years ago, and so it felt so familiar and uh, felt like home coming back again. And I'm grateful for uh, Daniel Hill uh, uh, inviting me to come and share and to participate in worship uh, with you all again this morning. Um, as uh, Daniel mentioned, uh, we are coming from the book of Acts, chapter 9, 36 through 43. Um, and I want to invite us to kind of wrestle um, with the kind of faith that is necessary in our world today. Uh, you know, there are two streams of black thought that have been um, really emerging over the past decade in terms of their significance that have been catching my attention um, and I've been thinking about them, and then I was thinking about the fact that Chadwick Boseman's latest work kind of touched on both of those kind of streams and themes in some ways. There's something called Afro-pessimism, and there's something called Afro-futurism. Uh, Afro-pessimism, uh, this is like the oversimplified version, but it's grappling with what seems to be the permanence of anti-blackness as a feature of modern life. Afrofuturism, in contrast, imagines a future where black people are actually flourishing, right? Often um, with like a sci-fi genre, right? Both of them, in their own ways, are grappling with the persistence of anti-black oppression and disproportionate suffering that black people are experiencing, not just in the United States, but all around the world. So Chadwick Boseman's work touched on both of these themes. Uh, obviously, maybe the one that's maybe very obvious is uh, Black Panther, right? Um, there we have an invitation to imagine a society where colonialism and white supremacy have not had their comprehensive reach all over their life. Imagine a space where the beauty and creativity and brilliance of black people is on full display through the fictive lands known as Wakanda. Uh, Black Panther 1 and 2 together explore themes of identity, uh, in, invites us into complex characters struggling with the colonial legacy, anti-blackness, broader racial oppression throughout the world, and to ponder what kind of responsibility we ought to have in response to it all. And because of the success of the movie and the power of imagining other worlds uh, beyond what ex exists in the moment, uh, Bozeman, you know, he in many ways, especially from the Black Panther series, became a global icon. Black Panther 2 tried to carry the weight of Bozeman's death, um, and we saw so much how he was such a gifted, talented actor, um, even as his life ended too soon. But not everyone watched uh, Chadwick Bozeman's. Uh, uh, latest or his last movie that came out. 
um, entitled Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, a Netflix movie. It is a remake of a play from the 1980s, but the setting of the movie is in Chicago, in a Chicago recording studio from the 1920s. There is one particular scene uh, that Chadwick Boseman really does the whole thing with brilliant acting as the character Levy Green. Uh, this is, I'll say, a little bit of a spoiler alert for those that haven't uh, watched it, um, but don't worry. Um, nothing that I can say can do justice to actually watching and experiencing it on the screen uh, yourself. So anyway, so after hearing a story, this character, Levy Green, after hearing a story about a black man of God who was taunted for hours by white men who forced him at the point of gun to dance as they ridiculed him, Levy Green immediately insults the very idea of God. His bandmates are present as he does this, and they suggest he's going to go to hell for those comments. Levy, however, is offended not only by the idea of the threat of hell, but even the very idea of God as a divine being that actually has the power to intervene. It's here at this moment that Chadwick Boseman playing Levy really goes into like this really powerful monologue. Levy begins to say that God and Jesus hate black people. They don't love you. They hate you, he says. And God doesn't listen to black prayers, but instead God tosses black prayers into the garbage. He basically is claiming that God has turned his, black, his back on black people. His bandmate, a devoted believer in response, attacks Levy, which provokes Levy to pull a knife on him. And while he is swiping his knife at him in the air, Levy tells him to call on his God to save him. He continues to try to swipe at him with the knife. And you can tell in this moment that Levy is holding onto something profoundly painful, that there's something below the surface of this interaction that is triggering this response. And it is now that he taunts the bandmate to call on God to save him. He dares God to act and basically suggests that God is impotent and no good. And then he tells God to help him like he helped my mama. He said, we, we learned that, that his dad had uh, was away out of town, and while he was there, uh, gone, white men came into the house and assaulted Levy's mom. And he heard his mama crying out to God, crying out to Jesus for help, for mercy, but to no avail. Looking up and toward, upward and talking to God, Levy says, save him like you did my mama. I heard her when she called you. I heard her when she said, Lord, Lord have mercy. Jesus, help me. Please, God, have mercy on me, Lord. And did you turn your back? Did you turn your back, he says. Levy takes it a step further and tells God to turn his back on him, to strike him down. He wants to know, where is your God? Where is your God? All of this with much stronger language than I'm going to use in church. It's a powerful scene. 
That certainly will be uncomfortable for any lover of God to hear. But it really touches on so much pain, so many struggles real people are having as they try to hold on to God while simultaneously watching all the ongoing oppression, injustice, violence, senseless human suffering happening all around them. And no amount of easy Christian cliche answers or pious sentiments attached to take it out of context Bible verses, right? Or positive thinking will resolve the tensions deep within the human spirit when someone's lived experience and deep beliefs seem to clash. At that point, people need a concrete intervention that demonstrates the good news the presence, the imminence, and power of God in the here and now. Unfortunately, not too many churches have been up for the task. So this morning, I would like to explore Tabitha's story in Acts 9 and invite us to discern the witness of the church in parallel with the testimony of this God-fearing woman and the community of the vulnerable that were blessed by her presence. I believe that Tabitha's faithfulness can function like a parable for the current challenges of the church and the struggle to hold on to God that we are seeing across the United States today. And so in verse 36, uh, it says, In Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. Her life overflowed with good works and compassionate acts on behalf of those in need. Her life was defined first by the fact that she was a disciple. Not just a believer, she was a disciple. That means she was actually converting her life towards the way of Jesus. She didn't just accept Jesus into her heart. She didn't just get warm and fuzzy feelings about Jesus, but she was committed to following Jesus in her own life. The life and teachings of Jesus guided her everyday ordinary habits. She took Jesus seriously in shaping her own life and commitments. She was a disciple. She was a student of the birth, life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptized into the church as a disciple of Jesus meant that she took the courageous invitation to follow in the footsteps of the Lamb, to obey his teachings, to be made after the image of the Son, to live in such, such ways that it was no longer her who lived, but Christ who lived through her, and by doing so, making the story of Jesus visible for her neighbors. She was a disciple. That meant that her belonging was not in being in Rome, but in Christ. It meant that her beliefs were transformed because her awareness of the preeminence of Jesus Christ in all creation meant that her behavior was aligning to the call to love one's neighbor, to prioritize the least, last, and lost, to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and give water to the thirsty. She was a disciple. So she was a peacemaker in the midst of violence. She participated in God's liberation of the oppressed. She sought to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. She was a disciple, so her, her top priority was following Jesus through the study of his birth, life, teachings, death, and resurrection, and through encountering the living and resurrected Christ in her life. Friends, our sister Tabitha was about that life of radical discipleship in the way of Jesus and participating in God's new reign that had come to earth right under the nose of the old society. 
And what is beautiful about Tabitha's faith is that it was living faith. And so it produced good works. James reminds us that faith without works is dead. Our Bible makes it clear that we are called to care for the, wi- the widows, the orphans, the poor, the foreigner, and the oppressed. These were the people that were most vulnerable within the structures and systems of the ancient societies that the Bible were written in. Tabitha had a faith that actually responded with good works towards those in need. She understood that you can't claim to love God and have apathy towards one's neighbor. Love of God and love of neighbor are inseparable from one another. In fact, what we see is that our love of God is expressed through our love of neighbor. And this love is not the weak, sentimental love many people talk about. It is godly compassion and an action on behalf of the needs of others. That's the kind of disciple Tabitha was. She practiced what the Bible calls justice and righteousness for the most vulnerable. And none of this would have been extraordinary for someone that was a disciple of Jesus. This is the expected basics of discipleship in the way of Jesus. Actually following the way of Jesus is the definition of what it means to be a disciple. When I think about the witness of the church, I'm reminded about its origins. The, the church began understanding its vocation to live the good news of Jesus Christ through good works on behalf of the most vulnerable in society. For the first several centuries, it practiced a rigorous catechism system to disciple people into the way of Jesus. Cyprian in the third century talks about not only learning new beliefs as he participated in catechism, but also undergoing a conversion of behavior through serving the poor and renouncing even the pompous purple clothing and other elite ways of life that he had grown comfortable with prior. The church was sometimes ridiculed for its members being disproportionately filled with enslaved people and women who would have been looked down upon by the larger society. The church was known for its care for the poor and those most vulnerable in society. And I don't want to overstate the life of the early church because they were humans just like us, and the early church had its challenges and conflicts in its own time. Yet the very meaning of what it meant to be a disciple was understood to be inseparable from the way of Jesus. And it was expected that such a life was the ordinary way of life that all disciples accepted. And the church, despite its struggles and sometimes failures, continued to bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ through their lives. And so as Cyprian said himself, he has this phrase that I love. He says, we don't speak great things, we live them. Too often the American church seems to live by the opposite mantra. We don't live great things, we speak them. If we continue on verse 37 through 39, it says that about that time, though, she became so ill that she died. After they washed her body, they laid her in an upstairs room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, when the disciples heard that Peter was there, they sent two people to Peter. They urged, please come right away. Peter went with them. Upon his arrival, he was taken to the upstairs room. All the widows stood beside him crying as they showed the tunics and other clothing Dorcas made when she was alive. Though Tabitha was a radical disciple of Jesus who practiced compassionate acts and good works on behalf of those most vulnerable and in need, that didn't keep her from experiencing the pull and power of sickness and death in her own life. And so we are told that Tabitha got ill and then she died. It's also interesting to know that in her death, 
she was deeply missed. People's lives were better because she was alive and there was a hole that would be left unfilled with her death. And because of that, her life was mourned by a community of people that loved her. Her death stirred a deep lament among her community. The influence and impact of her life on others was so great that people were in shock at this loss. They were devastated by her passing. They were broken by her death. And notice that the community who surrounded her lifeless body, wasn't, it wasn't just anyone there. It was a community of widows. It was a community of vulnerable people who were mourning the end of her life. She spent her life caring for those who were most vulnerable, and it was vulnerable women who surrounded her body, cared and prepared it, and mourned her death. As a disciple of Jesus, Tabitha prioritized the very same people in her life that Jesus did in his own. Jesus was a magnet to those pushed into the cracks, edges, and margins of society. He was most gentle and caring towards those who were poor, to the Samaritans, to vulnerable women, to the sick, to the stigmatized, and those who've had their backs pushed against the wall. Tabitha's life was inseparable from those who were most vulnerable, and now those who were most vulnerable were now inseparable from Tabitha's death. Their lives are testimonies to the goodness of God expressed through Tabitha's life. But her death also created deep dissonance, leading to lament and mourning. Right now, I'm seeing people across our nation, especially young people, uh, they're experiencing severe dissonance in terms of what they were told the church was and what they've actually witnessed in their lives. They are told that the church is full of followers of Jesus that love God and love neighbors, that Jesus is Lord above all, but they are seeing the church of the ABCs, that is, as my friend says, it prioritizing attendance, buildings, and cash. They are told that Jesus loved all people and that we are to seek first God's kingdom, but they are seeing racism and white Christian nationalism defining people's sense of belonging rather than their baptism in Christ. They are told that the gospel transforms people's lives towards compassion and mercy, but they are seeing hard-hearted, mean-spirited disregard for the most vulnerable. They are seeing a gap between what the church told them they are about and then watching the full affirmation of corrupt and unjust political leaders that will give them power to impose their will on others. They are seeing the cry of Black Lives Matter being responded to with callousness in an anti-CRT backlash and retorts demonstrating the disposability of black life in our society. What they are told and what they are seeing are not lining up and it is causing severe dissonance for many people's faith. In the book, White Too Long, Robert Jones, he exposes the findings of national research based on sociological surveys and interviews where people basically had the chance to self-articulate their own beliefs. And the results from the research are devastating for the church in the, in the United States. He found that white Christians have an increased likelihood to hold racist views in comparison to non-Christian white members of society. That's right, the, the research found that for the average white Christian, their faith was not decreasing their racist views, but instead for many, it was doing the opposite. They were more likely to hold racist views if they identified as Christian or were regular attenders of a white church. 
Jones, who is a white Christian himself, makes a powerful point from the research saying that if one then, therefore, if you took this seriously, if you wanted to go recruiting for a hate group, you'd have better success on a Sunday going to the church parking lot than going to your local coffee shop or Starbucks where people are skipping service. And for many people, this kind of stuff is creating a whole lot of dissonance that is sickening their faith. And for some, their faith is already completely dead. Many people can't hold any longer to the goodness of Jesus and the willful disregard for the well-being of others often expressed in the church. The love of the triune God and the hard-hearted response of Christians to undocumented immigrants is too much to hold simultaneously. The beauty of Jesus overcoming sin and death through his resurrection seems hypocritical when many American Christians support death-dealing policies like unregulated access to guns as over 30,000 people are killed by gun violence every year. As American Christians are the most affirming of the death penalty, deeming some lives disposable and unable to be redeemed despite our gospel message. And because American Christians are the most vocal supporters for an overbloated military complex while turning our eyes away from the harm and suffering caused by war and military dominance all around the globe. Folks are holding a, a lot of dissonance. They don't understand how Jesus who preached good news to the poor can be compatible with middle-class and elite arguments and ideologies that push for policies that crush those with the least access to resources, who have the most underfunded schools, the folks most struggling just for affordable and quality housing, health care, and livable wages. People really want to know how the Samaritan story Jesus told so that we would understand that everyone is our neighbor, that we are called to love, could result in what I call a love gap towards so many different people, where certain categories of people Christians are permitted to respond to without any empathy and sometimes outright hate. They openly and unashamedly lack in godly compassion and action for the actual well-being of others. People don't understand how our faith that teaches us to not lord over others like the Gentiles do, as described by, Math, by, in, by Jesus in Matthew 20, 20 to 28, could result in the obsession of so many Christians who desire to hoard political power for the purpose of controlling and dominating society and coercing everyone else to follow their personal moral convictions. I've been journeying with young people for almost two decades now. I've, I've seen so many people stumble over the dissonance. And recently, it has been producing lots of sickened faith. And even worse, lots of faith that has completely died. And so just as there were those gathered around Tabitha mourning and lamenting her death, there are lots of folks today mourning and lamenting the death of their own faith. See, some think that how Christians live in the public square doesn't matter. But what we must understand is that the body of Christ is called to be the physical manifestation of Jesus in our world. We are supposed to be mysteriously how Christ takes on flesh in the world. The confession is that Jesus Christ exists as Christian community, as the body of Christ in the world. And so how we gather and how we scatter in society actually matters. We are supposed to yield to the preeminence of Christ and the movement of the Spirit in such ways that we can say with Paul, that is not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. 
We're supposed to live in such ways that our neighbors watch us go about our daily lives. They get glimpses and snapshots of the Jesus story being made visible in our very lives. Now, I'm not saying that we need to be perfect. I'm not asking anyone to be God, to be a Messiah, to be a perfect savior. Uh, No, none of those things. I'm not asking for any of that. What I'm suggesting is much more basic. I'm saying that we're called to be disciples of Jesus, that as that we follow in the way of Christ are being made new creations. And that when we do fall, when we do harm others, when we do sin, we serve the one who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, but we are called to confess, repent, and make right our wrongs and repair our harm. Built into the DNA of our faith is a way for us finite and fallen people to deal with how we harm others. I'm not saying we are perfect. I'm just saying that we ought to take Jesus seriously in our lives, bear witness to the fact that Jesus is a game-changing reality. Unfortunately, the opposite has been too true for too many people. Many people see the church as just one more source for producing hatred, apathy, ignorance, and disregard for others. And so we are seeing a lot of sick and dead faith in response. It's not only people's faith that is dying, but some wonder if the church itself is dead. I mean, it wasn't, it was like 10 years ago that uh, Eddie Long made a very, very provocative statement that's questioning whether the black church was dead in an article to provoke, you know, conversation concerning the witness of the black church in society. He intentionally was being a bit hyperbolic, um, but the heart of his concern was captured in his question, is the black church dead? He wondered how the black church, which defied and resisted slavery and white supremacy and was a direct confrontation to Jim Crow in the United States, could produce in the 21st century so many individualistic Christians, so many prosperity gospel preachers, and so many folks of no earthly good for those who are in most need and are most vulnerable. Now, obviously, there are many black churches that don't fit that description. Nonetheless, his point, we could stretch that out towards so many different Christian streams and traditions and local congregations. So many, in the words of the book of James, lack the works to demonstrate a living faith. So many congregations exist where their faith is dead. And so just like the widows gathered around Tabitha's body, we too must lament the ways in which the name of Jesus is too often vandalized in the public square, but yet don't reflect the radical commitments to the least, last, lost, and little ones that Jesus did in his own life and teachings. We must lament all the people turned away from Jesus because of the commitments of people who claim his name. We must lament the ways we as a church too often fail to make the story of Jesus visible and manifest in our own bodies for our neighbors. If we continue in verse 40 to 43, it says that Peter sent everyone out of the room, then knelt and prayed. He turned to the body and said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand and raised her up. Then he called God's holy people, including the widows, and presented her alive to them. The news spread throughout Joppa, and many put their faith in the Lord. Peter stayed for some time in Joppa with a certain tanner named Simon. You know, this is a powerful moment. Peter and his confession, who Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church, now responds to the laments of the people and their invitation to attend to Tabitha's death. 
knowing that the only God, that only God can bring dead things back to life. Only God can overcome death, knowing that death does not have the final word and that Jesus, an enduring crucifixion, entered death and obliterated it and resurrected on the third day. Peter knew the source of resurrection power, and so he sent everyone out of the room to attend to the source of life. Peter wanted the space to attend to the presence of God, recognizing that at this moment, only the very ground of existence, only the one whom we live and move and have our being can make a way out of no way. So he prayed to the only true and living God. And after praying with a prayer of anticipation, Believing that God does hear our prayers, he turned to Tabitha's body and said, Tabitha, get up. Yes, he, he turned to her lifeless body and said, Tabitha, get up. And immediately, Tabitha opened her eyes and sat up as she focused her eyes on Peter. And as she encountered the resurrecting power of God, Peter was the physical manifestation through which the power of Jesus Christ was, was expressed. This is Christ existing as church for others. Tabitha knows that Peter is not God, but Tabitha experiences the good news concretely in her life through Peter's presence and faithfulness. Peter goes one step further and gives Tabitha his hands and pulls her up. He pulls her up and towards embracing the fullness of resurrection power. He pulls her up so that she can walk in new life. He pulls her up and away from the death-dealing forces and towards the life-giving presence of the Spirit. Now, Peter knows that this moment can't just be a moment just for him and Tabitha, and so he immediately calls the rest of the holy community, including the widows, so that they too can bear witness to the concrete good news of the Messiah's resurrection power overcoming sickness and death in her body. See, Peter knows that this lamenting community needed to experience the tangible expression of God's love in their lives. They needed to encounter that God is good, present, and attentive, and will never leave them alone to fend for themselves. That no matter how distant God may seem when we are going through our, you know, dark night of the soul, that they can hold on knowing that God is there. Peter knew that sometimes our faith is hanging on by a thread and needs strengthening, that it will come through God's love and power expressed through God's people. Peter knew that this community needed to witness God using him to bring Tabitha back to life. And the response to seeing this happen is that the good news of Jesus spread all throughout the region and faith was increased. What could have destroyed faith ended up strengthening their faith in the faith of others. They bore witness to the reality that the death-dealing forces of this world do not have the last word. And because of that, actual good news went forth in the region. And so just like Peter prayed over Tabitha's dead body and said, Tabitha, get up, and then lifted her up to new life, we who consider ourselves disciples to the Lamb of God must be aware of so much sickness and death all around us. And we ought to be a living, a life-giving presence in our death-dealing world. We ought to be a people of resurrection in a society that crucifies the vulnerable. We ought to be the ones to say, get up, while lifting them upwards when they are down. The church in the midst of so much dying faith can't be a people of death. Too often people stop and think that the good news is that Jesus died. 
No, but 1 Corinthians 15 says that if Jesus died and was not resurrected, then we ought to be the most pitied. The good news is that sin, death, and evil do not have the final word. And instead, God resurrected Jesus from the dead and that we too can experience the resurrection of the dead by dying and rising in Christ. And so we need to live into the full story of Jesus that moves through death and towards resurrection. We must be a resurrection people. We seek to live in ways that cultivates and affirms life for the most vulnerable to those in need through compassionate actions and good works. Uh, Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas says it like this. She says, fortunately, the gospel story that Jesus preaches and incarnates does not stop with the cross. And as much as the cross does indicate Jesus's utter identification with the oppressed, it is not a static identification. In other words, the fact that Jesus identifies with the oppressed is not a sanctification of oppression as if it is only being oppressed that one can find God. Rather, Jesus's identification with the oppressed is an identification with them in their struggle to survive and thrive in the face of the crucifying realities that threaten and destroy their lives. And then she goes on with this. She says, thus the cross is not the end, but a revelatory point on the way to new life, new reality. It reveals where the movement towards God's just future begins. So we've got good news to spread. Jesus not only died, but resurrected. And because of that, we know that we serve a life giving God. And so we work to promote life abundantly, not the narrow partisan approach to affirming life, but a holistic practice that cultivates life in every area. It is a pro-shalom ethic that seeks after the full well-being and flourishing of everyone, especially the most vulnerable among us. And so like Cyprian, we preach good news, not just in word, but in deed. Like him, we say, we don't speak great things, we live them. And so may our lives speak great things. May our lives of good works speak a word that says, get up, Tabitha, to the most vulnerable. May our lives of compassion, compassionate acts speak a word that says, to get up, to Tabitha, to the people whose faith is dying or dead. May our lives of justice and mercy, love and compassion, righteousness and repentance speak a word that says, get up, Tabitha, to the church that has failed to take Jesus seriously. May our church be a community of disciples that make visible the Jesus story so that everyone that needs the physical manifestation of God's resurrection power, of God's good news, of God's healing justice and delivering presence, that they would experience it because our lives made Christ tangible for others, because we were Christ's presence, because we were the body of Christ exist existing as community where actual good news could be experienced in the midst of our death-dealing world. Amen. Well, what a gift to have Dr. Drew with us today. Amen. Yeah, we well, thank you. Thank you so much. He's had a long weekend, but it's a great to go overtime for us. He's going to do a little kind of unplugged, share some of what he's thinking, open it up to Q&A. So if you want to stick around, you are more than welcome. We're going to flip this around pretty quickly and uh, kind of do a part two with him. So, But I know many of you also have to go head on. So, so we're ready for a benediction. I kind of felt in here. It was so great in here, but felt a lot of masculine energy in here today. So I said, we need Dr. Sally to uh, <laughs> say a blessing over us to give us a benediction. Um, so I invite you all to stand up, and we're going to hand this over to Dr. Sally. She blesses us and sends us out with a benediction.
Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hart. Um, you've given me so much to think about in my spirit. You've, you've put my spirit in a state of disequilibrium uh, because that's what happens when we have something um, that's calling us out into life-altering witness. Dr. Hart's book is about being a witness, and he's calling us out as a church. What kind of a witness are we? What kind of a witness am I? Um, you know, I'm a psychologist, and so I'm thinking about Peter sending out those people, and I'm also wondering if part of that was, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this or I don't know what I'm going to pray for. I don't know what's going to happen. And I wonder if this was one of the ways that Peter was changed forever. This is already a different Peter than the Peter who was afraid that we know about earlier, the Peter who fled. Um, what would it be like to pray, to call out, saying, get up, and to see Tabitha? get up. He said, Tabitha, get up, and she got up. Say it with me. He said, Tabitha, okay. I don't identify with Peter in that moment, and that's part of the disequilibrium for me that Dr. Hart is leading me into, but what I do know is that he is asking us to look around, to open our hearts to vulnerability. And vulnerability lives in people. It lives in relationships, right? It lives in creation. And we are surrounded by vulnerability, and we are vulnerable, right? I couldn't feel more vulnerable in my life right now um, in some ways. And yet, it wasn't Peter who gave life back. But as Dr. Hart said, Peter had to send them out. Peter had to pray. Peter had to let those words come out of his lips. Peter said, say it with me, Tabitha. He had to say it. And then he had to have that waiting between the moment that he said it and the moment that she opened her eyes. And then I wonder what happened to him. So I want to ask for myself and for each of us that we would go out from here. Can we, can we look, can we be open today and this week to vulnerability around us? Maybe it's subtle. Maybe it's big. And can we at least ask the question, God, how do you want me to be a witness of you in this vulnerability? Not how can I bring life? Peter didn't bring the life. Peter called out for God to bring the life. And then he pulled her up. I don't know what it was about that phrase that you said, but then he had to pull her up, right? People have pulled me up. I have been Tabitha sometimes. And people have even sometimes said that little, sinful, imperfect, limited, not as mature as I should be, not as strong in my faith as I should be, that I have helped them 
hang on to their sickening faith. Can we, River City, can we ask God to help us this week? Maybe even today before you leave, somebody's prayer request went out, give them a hug. Look into somebody's eyes for that extra minute, that extra second, or maybe not a minute, that might be a little creepy. <laughs> Let me change that. Maybe just for that extra second. And let's see how God uses us this week to let him cause life, cause flourishing through his love, through his power in his community of witnesses. Bow your heads with me, Lord. Only through your spirit could we even respond to that and not run away from it. Could we ever do the equivalent of what Peter did in this passage, even in some small way? Thank you for these words. They are humbling. They are frightening. They are encouraging. They are thrilling. They are hopeful, Lord. Not hope in us, but hope in you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for Dr. Hart. Protect him, Lord. Bless him for his witness. It's a powerful one, and we're grateful that he shared it with us. Little River City this morning. May you bring a sense of hope to each person who came today and who's hearing this. Kindle that hope, and may we help to be a part of that. We pray this in Jesus' name, in the powerful name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. amen.